It was a frightening thing just to think of something like that happening right, right in front of your house. In the days after Tom Fogelman was killed, anxiety was at an all-time high in the snow camp community and beyond. And it had a major impact on everyone who lives in Alamance County because it's not that common that you walk out your front door one day and really realize that there's people that are capable of such graphic things. Knowing that someone who beat a man to death the store where he'd spent his entire life hadn't been identified, never mind captured. There was a lot of people in this neighborhood close by here that uh, were very concerned about something that bad happening this close by. Newspapers printed the pleas for answers. TV stations aired story after story. Since the murder, time has stood still for Tom Fogelman's family. But today... There's nothing. Those articles do little more than sit in an album in Tom's sister's house. When he was killed, there are no telling it the people that may have owed him money. I got one book in yonder. Never paid a dime. But even though some people knew Tom his entire life, having watched him grow from boy to man. Certainly not Marvin Martin. He was a boy when I'm when I'm there. Those who knew him best are the ones who grew up alongside him. Those he watched grow up. Your uncle was Mr. Fogelman? Yes. Okay. I'm Fox 8's Michael Hennessy. We meet the man behind the name, the man at the center of the secret, in episode two of A Country Store Killing. From the sky, Highway 49 looks like an artery cutting through Alamance County's countryside. But in the years since Tom Fogelman's 2002 murder, the road itself is fractured. As you move closer to ground level, the lines of rubberized asphalt used to repair those cracks look like blood vessels. And after a slight left turn, you pull up to a modest white building, a custom leather business. Tommy, he stayed there and he always, always was there. I mean, he was a mama's boy and he stayed there. It's been renovated, rebranded, repurposed, but the address remains 8309. To some, including Tom Fogelman's sister Joanne, it will always be the location of the Fogelman store, built in 1940. This is what was there when we grew up. To that year, we go back to the beginning of Tom's life to better understand the circumstances of his death. It's a hard thing to live with. Tom Fogelman was born on May 9th. 1940, the oldest of three children, and early picture shows he and Joanne on opposite sides of their father, Gurney. And Gurney's dressed in a black suit, pinstripe dress shirt, striped tie with his tie clip positioned right in the middle of his chest. His hair parted and slick, his right eyebrow slightly raised, his smile more in the shape of a frown. Joanne's a toddler in a white dress, her hair just starting to cover her ears with a natural curl covering the right side of her forehead, her right hand lifted in the shape of a fist, and her father's hand supporting her at the hip as she grins, his right hand around the back of his firstborn, Tom's hair dark, clean cut, he's in overalls, also in a pinstriped button down, his hands rested in his lap, his face pouty, lips pursed, both eyebrows raised. And he never did play outside a lot with us. Never did, me and the younger brother. Uh, he was more stayed in the house with Mama. Tom's body seemingly resisting the outside world. The environment perhaps rejecting him. Weird thing works. That's their quirks. What kind of quirks did he have? 
Um, he was a germaphobe. Mm-hmm. He did not want anybody to touch him. He um, and he growing up, I think, had had um, he had eczema. E- uh, yeah, eczema and um, uh, really bad asthma and was asthmatic. But he also, I remember him saying he could get outside like if it was raining, and when a raindrop would hit him, it would make a blister. Yeah. Very, you know, was you know very sensitive skin. skin. Inside was his domain. The classroom was no exception. He was a good student in school. As far as I know, he always seemed to be. He never had to bring any books home. And if I would ask him to help me with something, and he would always tell me, "Well, if you'd listen to the teacher, you wouldn't need no help." But beyond the books, his smarts were slim. For plain old common everyday sense, he didn't have it. He did not have it. His looks didn't change much between that first picture and the next. Still wearing overalls, his haircut still kept. It's slicked here, probably an elementary school picture, and a smile. Around 10 years later or so, in what looks like a high school picture, he now is the one in a black suit, black bow tie. More product in his hair, his smile showing teeth, but barely. Clean shaven. I called him a hermit. He stayed so much by himself. Uh, he always stayed at the store, though. Tom turned 37 the year their father died. Their mom stayed on at the store, and Tom helped. He, uh, he was different. What did you think about him, Fred? He liked a lot of beer. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Another thing he liked a lot was hockey, often bringing his nieces and nephews to watch one of the local teams. But even when he was the one playing something, it was as contactless as possible. Oh, another thing he did, too, was he played checker through the mail. I don't know if you ever heard of that or not. But he would make a move against somebody else. Now, it might be in the mountains. It might be in another state or where. I don't know where they were. But he would make his move, and then that person would make their move. I don't know how they did it, but he played checkers through the mail. Now, that might be new to you, but I knew he did it. Sounds like it would take a while to finish that game. Absolutely. About the only thing Tom did quickly. Yep, he did. Was drive. <laughs> and, and hey, wreck, wreck cars. He did. Yeah. Tear them up. I mean, tear them up. What were the conversations like? Most of the time, be about cars. He liked fastings, and I liked fastings. He never got hurt. Never. But he'd always be beard up. So I guess he was pretty flexible. A couple photos show him with a woman. This is the girl he went with. Likely who Joanne's talking about here. He did go with a woman who was engaged to her for a lot of years. The first at a dinner table, Tom with slicked hair once more, handlebar mustache. The woman with a slender face, blonde hair. You know, she's still around? Yeah, Yeah, but she won't talk to you. Another picture shows the pair around Christmas, Tom in a pinstripe suit. Mustache, half smile, holding a wrapped present. The woman wearing her hair darker and larger larger we mean higher. They never married, but he still stayed home with mama. He never married and never had any family. Tom's appearance changed drastically by the time their mother died in 1997. And while one driver's license shows a younger Tom with the same slicked back hair, a pencil thin mustache looking to the right of the camera, another license issued May 7th, 1996 shows a similar expression as the first picture we talked about. Both eyebrows slightly raised, a blank stare directly at the camera, a look almost of defeat. More of a bowl cut and a thickening beard, hair listed as black, eyes brown, but his beard's getting gray. 
If it was taken the day it was issued, that photo was from two days before his 56th birthday. He had about anything you'd ever want. At one time, he sold uh, refrigerators and stoves. He sold shoes. He, he sold all kind of feed and stuff. His fear of other people's germs never left. If he handed them money, he either pushed it to them or he would drop it in their hand. The money he took from customers had to be cleansed. As Joanne put it, he took money laundering to a whole new level. Every bill, and I still have some of them, uh, that we got. I mean, whether we found $100 bills, 20s, 50s, 10s, 5s, 1s, what, every one of them was like a brand new bill. He cleaned every bill. And it was like pressed, mm -hmm. pristine, just like brand new. That could also be attributed to obsessive compulsive disorder, Joanne says. But at the same time, he was a bit of a hoarder taking the plastic from six packs and stacking it feet high, rarely letting something go unless it was bought, so much so that it was hard to get around the store at times because the paths woven through the junk were so narrow. He also had a schedule and stuck to it. He did certain things certain days of the week. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have been hard for somebody to have patterned the way he did things. Well, he went to the what bank on Wednesdays. And that's the day he was killed. That said, he ran the store much like his father had. But he helped a lot of people. Allowing people to run tabs. He put the, the tabs in the slots, you know, for the people. Many still there in little wire slots along a wall of the store, lined almost like time cards waiting to be erased. But for so many, that time didn't come. Still sitting there unsettled when our cameras first entered the store months after Tom's death. When he was killed, there are no telling at the people that may have owed him money. Mm -mm. I got one book in yonder. Never paid a dime. I called him a hermit. <laughs> 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 uh, he, he just, uh, it was kind of strange. He had a lot of book sense, but common sense, nah. He didn't have a lot of that. He didn't know how to do anything unless it came from a book. These are all things that Joanne, Fred, and Jennifer talked about with Alamance County Sheriff's Detective Barbara Tommy during their first meeting in their living room as we were invited along for the introductions. Do you mind if I actually look at that photo? Okay. When Tommy not only looked to get a glimpse into Tom's life. Tommy, he stayed there and he always, always was there. I mean, he was a mama's boy and he stayed there. He, he went with a lady, but he never married. And in fact, he was engaged to her. But also the people he surrounded himself with, or better yet, those who surrounded him. Did anybody that lived in the area have any issues with your brother? Not that I know of. Everybody always, to me, gave him a good name. What the property looked like when their parents bought and built it. When your family property was there and your parents were alive, what did they actually own? Oh, well, uh, Dad built that store in 1940. Uh, he ran it, him and mom, and there was three of us children. And 1977, daddy died, and then mama stayed there. And how it was transformed once those parents weren't around anymore. After your mom passed and your dad passed, did the grass grow up or did your brother continue to keep it? Oh, no, my oldest brother, he, he, never, he wasn't a mower yard if he had to. He never had no. no grass cutting. Even down, to the family dynamic. They had this crime scene tape up, and Wade, he walks up to me and he told me that somebody had, he thought, I believe shot Tom. In relation to the youngest of the Fogelman children. First thing I told him, I said, you old devil, you. Wade, 
Should've been you. Should've been you. Should've been you. How Joanne and Wade got along, or didn't. How he raised his four children, or didn't. And I can remember one of them telling me that I didn't know the times that they had cried wanting to be with their mom and daddy when they would put them out down here and drive off and leave But they brought them to mama so they could do what they wanted. Children, she says, weren't quote-unquote trained what they did after her mom's death. After uh, mom got to where she couldn't do, they began their work, and they destructed the whole place. Okay. They, we had nice stuff in the house. The store was everything you'd ever wanted about. But after they got through, yeah, makes you sick to even think about it. And what they did after Tom's. Were you doing any construction on any of the buildings that were here? Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. Did you guys keep any tools outside or anything like that? It was junk outside. Was it a lot or just a little bit? Uh, after after Tommy got killed, there was loads of junk. But his kids managed, managed to take it all, anything they could take in the store, in the house, or on the property, and, and sell it. Where was the most junk that was on the property? Was it outside or was it inside the buildings? Oh, I'd say inside. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Did you have loose items or like a pile of anything outside that you can remember? Do what now? Was there a pile of anything that was outside that you can remember? It was a... Uh, oh, they burnt their own pile right behind the store where they burned all kind of stuff on it and it left kind of a black pile in the yard. Why? Okay. Um, I'll discuss it with you later. Just one of the conversations between the detective and family, which continued after we were asked to leave the room. And I really don't even know if I should say it, but it don't matter now. He's gone. He didn't keep all his money in one place. We'll, we'll discuss that a little bit further okay. later on. But after Tommy left, we got a chance to sit back down with the family. At that point, it was dark, and you could actually see all the blue lights. It was Even before you got there, it kind of like lit the like sky. Like a stadium lit up. Reliving the night they pulled up to the store, which would ultimately become no more. I think they knew early on that it was going to be a challenge to solve this. What were you hearing from deputies back then? Was there a sense of hope that it was going to get solved? I remember they had a lot of different detectives on it. And I don't know if it's like they get to a certain point and then they put somebody new on it. They give them a promotion and go on up, and then that'd be the end of that. They say there's books and books on it. I don't know. I don't have a clue. Talking about what those original detectives told them would be challenges. For example, how if the murder had happened in the building next door, the family home which became Tom's, that it would have been easier to solve. Well, I mean, it's a public place. Public, yeah. I mean, anybody, and I mean, you know, even if you're looking from the aspect of, oh, we got DNA evidence. Well, who's to say that person didn't go in that store at oh, whatever point in time? I just was in, in there time. a while ago. And, yeah, know, I mean, you know, so it kind of puts things, yeah. you know, in a different perspective. Who those detectives thought could be suspects, where those people could have been, where they could be now. It could be a total stranger. So somebody could have been out of state and just stopped along and done that and saw a chance at it and they did it. But I can't see why they want to beat him in the head so many times. What weapon could have been used to kill Tom? They found a hammer. I don't know how long it was after it, down the road away from the store. What's changed? What could help here, nearly 
20 years later. They've got ways now that they didn't have, you know, back. So maybe, you know, maybe it'll be something different. Their level of hope that the detective they just met for the first time hours before could provide the answers they've been praying for for all this time. But if she goes back through all them papers like she says she's going she to. She might find something different. She yeah. may find something in there that, that it has just been looked over. Currently, the persons of interest pool is the same individuals and additional individuals. Detective Barbara Tommy's been in the military. She's been an officer at two different departments, now a sheriff detective. But I really think that this case is just going to be the totality of all of the evidence and not just one particular thing. One thing she'd never been was familiar with the Fogelman murder until it was assigned to her. Now. There's a entire shelf on a cabinet that's specifically devoted to this case and it's full from end to end. She has to dig through binders and boxes looking maybe for one sentence, a picture, an inconsistency, the key. So when you start from the very beginning, anybody and everybody is always possible. We look beyond the normal investigative lines at what could be the family's final fallback. Next time in episode three, of a country store killer. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to it, comment on it, spread the word to help us as we try to get this family the answers they've been seeking for nearly two decades. A Country Store Killing is written by me, Michael Hennessy, edited by photojournalist Chris Weaver. Our executive producer is Kevin Daniels. 